went a long way during the interviews. <laughs> the flower of love rose, the warming and intoxicating. <laughs> and the fragrance of sandalwood, the meditator's oil, which seemed to have helped, helped to relieve tension. <laughs> but I'm happy to say that they were not all tears of sorrow. There's some, some tears of joy, and that was very nice to see that some people are really using the, the toolkit, the medicine kit that we've been building together, and are having some progress in their insight. And that's wonderful to share. And then it's also wonderful sh- to share the pain and the angst, because that's what brings about the joy and the insight. It, we have to start with very, very hard work. Very hard work. Now, um, I've chosen a little selection here, which uh, I've always loved this image. This is an image um, that I first heard from Sayada Upandita. He told us that we were on the chariot to Nibbana. And I thought that was really exciting, you know. It's like, it's not a bus. <laughs> it's a chariot. It's, it's a noble vehicle. I mean, a bus, I shouldn't say. A bus is a noble vehicle, too, don't you? <laughs> but the chariot somehow, you know, the old way of being pulled along by these, these great steeds, you know, carry you along the path. Um, and then the description in the suttas goes like this. Um, one time when Ananda, who, you know, Ananda, Venerable Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for um, about 25 years, most faithful, beloved attendant. And one day he saw the famous Brahmin Janasoni, who was one of the Buddha's disciples, driving along in his glorious white chariot. And he heard the people ex- exclaim, that the Brahmin's chariot was the most beautiful of all. So, naturally, in his way, Ananda went to the Buddha, and he asked him, how would one describe the best chariot according to the Dhamma? And so this is what the Buddha said. He explained that the vehicle to Nibbana was like a chariot. Faith and wisdom are the drought Drought animals, faith and wisdom. So we're being pulled along by faith and wisdom. 
Moral shame, remember? I know some of you want to forget. <laughs> Moral shame, which, which is our ability to recognize what we have done that we feel was unskillful, to see the results of it in our own life, to, um, to sense the suffering that it has caused with such intensity that we, we never want to repeat that again. We would like to protect ourselves from that kind of suffering. We want to protect everyone else so that we can be valiant warriors that don't harm anyone. We're warriors for truth. So it's a posture of total non-harming, non-violence to ourselves or anyone else. So it has a wonderful role, this, this acknowledgement of, of what we may have done that's unskillful. And it becomes the break. Moral shame is the break. Because you don't want to just get pulled along. This, this vehicle has to also be able to stop. Right? So moral shame is the break. Why is it the break? Because it stops us from going the wrong way. It keeps us on the path. You know, we could... The, the life is full of bumps and, and uh, gullies that we might accidentally get tossed into. But if we have a break, such as moral shame and moral fear together, we're protected and we'll keep steady on the path. And that's the only purpose. It's not to wallow. It's not to beat ourselves up. Because that's not the path. That's waste of time. That's guilt. That's the, the conditioning ourselves even further and further into darkness, delusion, states of mind that are full of anger and greed and obstruct us from seeing clearly this wondrous perfection which is already the energy that we are. It's clear and pure and unobstructed and always available to us until we call it by its wrong name such as self-hatred or um, fear or jealousy. These are the poisons of the heart. So moral shame is the break. The intellect are the reins. So the reins. We we do have an intelligence and it's not for nothing. We We hear the teachings we recognize the markers where we are and we adjust ourselves. If we see that we're holding a red-hot stone that's burning our hands, which is guilt or um, indulging ourselves over and over and over again about the grief we feel for someone that we love who died or killed themselves or or we're in an accident and they're paralyzed or they're dying. And over and over again, oh, isn't it terrible? It's awful. The world is about to go to war. Oh, it's terrible. It is. But that doesn't liberate us by going, by holding that hot stone in our hands and burning ourselves. We throw it away. And we come back to connecting to that which strengthens us and helps us to see the impermanence 
of all conditioned things. Why would we expect this stone not to burn us if we hold on to it? That, you know, because we are, we're just, this is just flesh. It's burnable. So don't hold on to the things that destroy your mindfulness, your clarity, your ability to be wise and to move on the path and to let go of hatred and greed and delusion. Don't cling to your suffering or your happiness, conditioned happiness. Mindfulness is the charioteer. This is a wonderful image. Mindfulness is the charioteer. So you can see that mindfulness, used properly, right mindfulness, has the ability to lead us onwards on the path to balance all the faculties of faith, energy, concentration and wisdom. Mindfulness is the glue that holds it all together. And it keeps that chariot on the spiritual path. Not on the wheel of samsara, but on the path to freedom from samsara. So it's, it's a very, very powerful tool and we've gone into it quite in detail in the last couple of days. Virtue is the accessories. So all the, um, all the equipment that holds this chariot together is virtue itself. And we did, we did talk at length about the purity of the mind and how if the mind is not clear then we can't even see the way it's as if we try to hack our way through the bush you know you've got to have a machete or something you can't just go for a stroll in the bush of New Zealand can you it's not like the woods of Canada with these tall straight trees that have paths everywhere you can still get lost, very low. I've been lost in the woods there too. But there, there are many, many paths. It's not, not so thick. Here, you, you really have to know what you're doing to find your way through this bush. And so virtue, the purity of the mind, the inner sila, is, is actually what, what helps us clear the way and keeps our vehicle together and strong enough that we can do it. We can't have clarity of mind unless we have abandoned unwholesome states of mind. There are those kilesas again. We have to uh, empty ourselves again and again. You know, Ajahn Shah gives this wonderful image how a spider builds a web spider and then sits in the middle of the web very still and when an insect flies into the web he catches it and wraps it up in his uh, thread in that little silky uh, thread and tucks it away in a corner for dinner then another little insect comes and he does the same thing he wraps it up and stores it he's got a little compartment with all these frozen meals. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if that's... I mean, it's nature. 
spiders do this. I remember one time I was shaving my head in the Kuti in England and um, I saw this bee get caught in a spider web. Beautiful bumblebee. Nice English bee. Well, it wasn't English. <laughs> the bee didn't know it was English. But <laughs> because we were in England, I thought it was an English bee. And I felt really terrible. And can you imagine? My hands were covered with shaving foam, and so was my head. And um, I had only a little bit of water, just enough to, like, a certain amount of washing the hands so that I could use the razor without cutting myself. And then suddenly, I saw this bee caught in the web, and my first instinct was to try to knock it loose. And I didn't have enough, really enough water to get all the shaving cream off properly to do this without wrecking the web poisoning the poor bee with shaving cream. <laughs> so I just stood there helplessly and watched. And then of course I realized maybe it isn't skillful to interfere with nature. I've tried things like this before, like with a butterfly. You know, you end up destroying it because you shouldn't touch its wings. And I thought, well, I know, I mean, the bee could bite me, but then it, well, it would die anyway. <laughs> But somehow I felt that I could poke it loose, but I couldn't. And so eventually, you know, it got slower and slower, and eventually the buzzing stopped. And the spider came along, and a little later, after I'd finished my... I noticed that this poor dead bee had gotten wrapped up in nature's uh, saran wrap, or whatever, cling cling film, (laughs) and stored away for tomorrow. I felt really sad. This, why did this bee have to come and die in front of me like that? It was so sad. And then I thought, well, maybe this is good karma for the bee, because I did a little chant for him. And he died in the monastery with a nun chanting over him. <laughs> I mean, it must, you know, must, must be... Uh, sort of a good good way to go <laughs> anyway so in this way when the mind is really dealing properly practicing right effort and you see anger arise then you can do what the spider does you can kind of wrap it with mindfulness and know the anger as anger and put it away abandon it Just it's not dinner for later <laughs> some of us feed on anger don't laugh I, I, I mean from the interviews today I, could, I really felt compassion deep deep uh, sense of compassion for the level of suffering that we we endure and how some of us insist on and persist in wrapping up our anger and holding on to it and just nibbling away year after year 
time after time. We know that we know what to do, but we insist. This is called stubborn stubbornness at a certain level that is very counterproductive to to what we're doing here. So what we need to do is follow the spider up to a point, but then not nibble on it, not not swallow it, not not hang on to it. It's more the act of abandoning unwholesome states, abandoning our sadness and not indulging in it. Remember, we're here to methodically starve the ego to death, not to um, sit in astonishment at how remarkable our sickness is. Because, you know, we're all mentally ill at some level or other, and we're here to, to cure ourselves at the very deepest level. And we are on this um, wonderful vehicle, the chariot to Nibbana, and we can all do it if we really, really mean it, if we really want to. So that means letting go of the old habits, you see. And there are skillful ways to do it. And as we wrap up, or abandon, is maybe a better word, kind of wrapping up the kilesis, the impurities of the mind, the minute it arises, let's say there's um, sense desire in the mind, you just really want, you're hungry, it's only natural if you're hungry, that you want to eat a piece of chocolate, or uh, a bagel, or something, a piece of bread, or a sandwich, or a cookie, anything. Maybe after the talk you could (laughs) <laughs> I'm not suggest this is eight precepts, don't forget. But so you as soon as that thought arises in the you're busy noticing the object, as soon as the thought arises in the mind, like the spider that goes to the bee, the minute it it's in the web, it goes and catches the insect and wraps it up very carefully, very mindfully. So you do the same thing. Mindfulness goes to the thought of desiring the yummy little snack and it vitaka vichara here, those factors of jhana, of concentration, move right in with the mindfulness, touch the object, which is your thought. Now you've moved the thought becomes the object of meditation. You know it for what it is. You identify it as unwholesome. This is like when a virus enters your computer and quarantines the virus because it has this program called Norton or whatever. So you catch it and you throw it out. Goodbye. See, no, not see you later. Well, it will come back. (laughs) It's about to come back. But we are, mindfulness is is running the ship. So, as long as our mindfulness is in operation, even if that cookie desire comes back, we're ready for it. We're ready to say, no, no, no. And back to the breath. Back to the, the inner stillness. Back to the sound of silence. Back to the sensation of the body. Bringing our mind towards concentration. Concentration 
the purity of the mind, sila samadhi panya, the inner purity, the inner stillness or gathering of the energy towards connection. And then arises wisdom out of that. And we do this with whatever impurity or with whatever kind of unwholesome or unhelpful thought arises, whatever mara comes slipping in through some crack, we're right there ready to say, I know you, Mara, get out. That's just what the Buddha did, didn't he? When all Mara's daughters came dancing and enticing him. And they dissolved. All we have to do is name, name it for what it is and let it go. The four right efforts There are four right efforts that we must continuously apply to this kind of um, training. We're retraining the mind. The first effort, of course, is to know an unwholesome thought or a, a thought that is unskillful, that doesn't help the chariot move forward. Know it for what it is. Recognize it and abandon it right there. And if there's a wholesome thought in the mind, we encourage it. That's one of our accessories. That's purity. That's the virtue, which is an accessory to the chariot and helps it move. And then we discourage uh, unwholesome thoughts from arising again. When they're there, we get rid of them. When they're not there, we watch the origin of dukkha. Remember, this is the Four Noble Truths also in operation here. We observe where dukkha arises. It arises when we're not paying attention. So we keep the mindfulness very continuous. And this creates like a seal. It's like a lock on the door. So the mind enters into this sacred space in the heart where all of the, the other um, impacts, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and forms of the world, memories, um, plans for the future, fantasies, all these things don't have a chance to get in because our mindfulness, we're vigilant. Remember the policemen patrolling the streets? We're that vigilant that we really shine the light and no damage can be done, no crime committed crime is a heavy word. But look, if you're busy hanging on to a hot coal that's burning you or to hatred for yourself in your heart that's burning and destroying you, then that is a crime. That's panantipata. That's breaking the first precept. Inside. It's a big violence. And then, of course, whatever wholesome thought has not arisen, we cultivate it. So when we know that we have so much self-hatred that we can't even begin to find a, a, a little bit of mindfulness to get close to it, then we cultivate the antidotes. We practice gratitude. We rejoice about the goodness of our lives. We try to bring up a sense of just being grateful that we're alive. 
We're not sitting in Iraq in some house with our kids shivering when we read the news that the American army is gathering all around us and in two, three, four, five weeks, we don't know, is about to drop bombs on our heads. We're sitting here in this peaceful valley, not a care in the world, and Rex is busy in the kitchen cooking up these (laughs) scrumptious dolls and these nice fragrances on the shrine, soft rain falling, the lush bush, possums jumping up and down, the, the veranda. <laughs> We're living in paradise. So cultivate a sense of gratitude in your heart. And think about all the wonderful things you've done in your life. And rejoice. So you bring up joy in the heart. Remember, joy is the antidote for ill will, including this hatred, this habit. I'm no good, this guilt. Self-destruct. It's like, like, ex- you know, like there's a gorilla in there who's finding all kinds of strategies to kill yourself day in day out. So we drop th- those habits are very hard to break, but we find skillful ways to introduce thoughts that are antidotes, medicine tonics to make us smile, rejoice, feel good about ourselves. Ah, and you breathe. For the first time in your life, you wake up to joy and you breathe into this heart area that until now has only burned with pain or with sadness or with depression or with disappointment. He left me. He deserted me, he hates me, or whatever. You know, we all have some kind of dukkha from the past that we carry around. We've all been abused in one way or another. If we haven't done it to ourselves, somebody else has done it. If they didn't do it, we think they did. And if, if we don't think they did, then we're afraid that they might. There's all kinds of ways that we torture and torment ourselves. And funnily enough, one of the definitions of Nibbana is the, is the ending of torment. The ending of self-torture. Can you imagine? You think the torturer is out there. Blame it on society. Or blame it on your, your family. You know, or blame it on George Bush. There's a good. He's good. Or blame it, blame it on your your job, or you you didn't get enough qualifications. You you know you're not educated enough, or um, your body isn't quite right, or you're too old. There's so many ways that we can blame our suffering on something, some condition outside of ourselves. But if we really want to end the torture, then we have to, to stop doing that. We have to just know the origin of dukkha right here inside of ourselves as that little voice that, that goes, blame, blame, there, there, there. 
And then, of course, what you're really doing is hitting yourself. Because who are you hurting? You're not hurting the, the objects of your blame, really, or the objects of your hatred. Because holding on to hatred hurts the one who holds it. It belongs to you. And this is the wilderness of anger. Remember the story of Bharadvaja, the Brahmin, who abuses the Buddha and reviles him. And the Buddha seems unaffected. His face remains, his complexion remains radiant. And then the Brahmin says to him, Lord, I have reviled you and abused you, and yet you seem unaffected. How is this possible? And the Buddha says, well, if you were to prepare a sumptuous feast and invite many guests to come and eat, and they didn't eat, then to whom would the food belong? It belongs to you. And so, if you come to, if you come to someone with your anger, and they, they don't, they're not, you know, you're the one that owns your anger. You're the one that burns in your anger. That person might even be dead. They may live 10,000 miles away from here. It doesn't matter. You're carrying the monster. So let it go already. Put it down. Now here we are on the chariot. And I got way out. <laughs> so let's get back in. Meditation is the axle. This is lovely, isn't it? You know, the, the, the vehicle doesn't roll unless you're meditating. Right? So meditation is the axle upon which the vehicle rolls. And so we have to practice. We, meditation is the middle way. Meditare. It means coming to the middle. And even in Latin, isn't that interesting? The middle way is coming into the middle. This is the temple. So we contemplate inside the temple, meditate in the middle. Balance. The balance between uh, samadhi, concentration, and energy. So somebody asked the question about, you know, how do I know if I shouldn't move? I don't want to injure myself, you know. During. But if you're really practicing the balance between concentration and the effort that you're applying, you'll know exactly how to sit so that you don't injure yourself. Because all the factors of concentration in the body and the mind will, will find that balance so that your meditation deepens and deepens and the vehicle is carried along, moved forward, if you will. That's a simile there. So you, only you can know. Nobody can come along and say, excuse me, but your posture looks a little skewed. If you keep sitting like that, you'll, you'll um, have damaged cartilage in your knee. Nobody can tell you that. You can only know it yourself. So adjust your posture. Find a way to um, hold your body comfortably enough 
so that you can settle and then stop worrying. Then just breathe in and out and focus within you and learn. Learn what works for you and what doesn't. (coughs) If you apply too much energy, you'll hurt yourself. If you don't apply enough, your concentration won't work. If you concentrate too hard with willpower, and then you will yourself to sit for an hour, and your leg is about to fall off, this is not skillful, naturally. So working the middle way means practicing balance with all of these um, tools that we have. We don't beat ourselves into enlightenment. We just go very gently. It's a gradual training, bit by bit, step by step. And energy are the wheels. So energy is a very important one. We just talked about samavayana, the four right efforts. And I want to emphasize that last one about finding um, skillful ways of bringing up wholesome energy in the mind such as remembering remembering that your true nature is not angry it's pure so you can cultivate metta for yourself compassion for yourself joy for the goodness in your heart and then equanimity based on a reflection around karma if you have a heavy load that you're carrying well It may be that this is the result of action of body and speech that happened somewhere in your life or in a previous life. However, not everything is predetermined as somebody asked about karma. The the special thing about this teaching is that we do have free will. And karma is not just about cause and effect. It's cause and effect plus intention. So, yes, the causes and conditions that lead to the results of where you are now, your current predicament in life, one follows the other. You know that in the Dhammapada, there's that wonderful verse which says that the wheels of the cart, or the wheels of the chariot, follow uh, the ox or the horses well in the Dhammapada they're oxen here they're steeds but it's the same principle just as the, the, the mind whatever, whatever mind state you cultivate your mind follows behind that so you have the, the power of your intention to change that karma If you cultivate wholesome intention, then you can liberate yourself from all previous karma. There are certain heavy karmas that um, still we will have to suffer some consequences. But if we reach the first level of sotapana stream entry, first stage of liberation, then we will never fall into a state of woe. So we'll be safe and This gives us a sense of real urgency, not just an ordinary effort here on these wheels. We want these wheels to be 
really turning. So there has to be a fire in our effort, ardency, and at the same time balance. It's a razor's edge. Uh, equanimity, the balance, well, I was just talking about balance, right? So the energy of the wheels, equanimity is the balance. If the chariot is not balanced and it leans too much to one side, we'll roll over, turn over. In other words, upset the apple cart and we're back in the midst of suffering and we're not getting anywhere. We're just beating ourselves over the head or lost in our sense desire or attached to sense pleasure or sitting blissed out enjoying just the bliss of a good good mind state but not really having much insight into our predicament so unable to um, bring up the wholesome factors in the mind enough to break through our karmic habits and to liberate ourselves from mind states that keep us keep us uh, caught in samsara, caught in confusion, caught on the wheel, not the not the wheels of the chariot to liberation, but the wheel of the sense realm, the sensory realm that we're in. Renunciation is the chassis. Now I haven't talked very much about renunciation, but it's really, really important. Um, I just want to mention that renunciation is not just something you do at the beginning like you take the eight precepts and then everything just from there on it's just coasting along every day almost every hour you probably have to re-renounce I remember at the beginning of the Vasa I started a, a three month which ended up being four month retreat and I gave up chocolate and I used to really like chocolate I mean it was one of the sort of only medicines that we can have in dark chocolate that we can have in the evening but I decided that and usually this is something we do at the beginning of every Vasa um, the three month rains retreat we undertake some kind of um, Austerity, or some new renunciation. Never mind, you know, all the other things that we have renounced just as a part of the monastic training. So I don't know. I mean, it just came up in the mind. It was really a big thing for me because I do sometimes feel very hungry at night and haven't got a big reserve. But I thought, okay, I'll do it. And then just that intention in the mind people kept offering me chocolate <laughs> I, you know and I wasn't seeing anybody I didn't didn't even go when people would come to offer Donna at my kuti I never even saw them they would just leave it outside the door in a like a basket plastic chili bin called. and um, they just kept offering me all this chocolate so it was <laughs> finally I, I left a little note you know to explain that I wasn't having chocolate and then they didn't offer chocolate 
and then I had to work with mind states around it was just all kind of things would come up how long will I be able to do this for you know but it just fell away by this sincere commitment and sincere intention and also the recognition that the desire for chocolate was just greed so it left my mind free of all those mind states of wishing somebody would offer me chocolate or getting all nervous when they did because it no longer registered after the first few days it no longer registered as something for me which is oh great I can give this to the monks and, and then I had a lot of joy out of that and I'd wrap up these little packages and you know leave notes could you please bring this to the monastery that was a so people didn't know that how far that chocolate was getting <laughs> right up to the Ajahn and, and family but um, so there was a lot of joy just around one intention to renounce and, and, and something that uh, one had to just have the courage to say alright I mean, it's a little thing really it's not it's not nearly as much courage as you need to face your fear is it but greed is a more subtle kilesa than fear than anger it's more subtle and maybe more insidious so renunciation is the chassis and unless you can renounce unless you can make sacrifices on this path then you cannot make sacred your practice it's not not sanctified unless you're willing to make this renunciation and you just hang on to all your obsessions with what you did what you didn't do why you did it who thinks what about you who loves you who doesn't love you all these kind of things that occupy a lot of our time a lot of our energy unless we can little by little weed these things out then we're not devoting ourselves to the sacrifice sacrificing the stuff we're obsessed with sacrificing our pleasurable moments and the painful ones just to sit in the middle like the little spider and watch pay attention let go mindfully shoo away the unwholesome states encourage the joyful the loving kindness the compassion the equanimity, the rejoicing in the heart. Day after day, week after week, hello, year after year, this is a gradual lifetime process. It's not the work of ten days. But this is wonderful stuff, or wonderful continuation. The weapons are love. the weapons are love here we are back again in that contradiction the paradox we're at war with Mara and the weapon is love can you can you grasp it it's so wonderful 
So this is the meaning of that pithy verse in the Dhammapada. Hatred cannot be conquered by hatred, but by love alone. This is an eternal law. Why can't we shout this out to the whole world? Why won't anyone listen? You know why? Because we're not ready to shout it out, because we're still at war with ourselves. We can't be hypocrites. I mean, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out and march against war and protest against war and, and vote for peace and try to elect people that will um, help to initiate disarmament in this world and prevent war and conflict. But really, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, the biggest fires are in here. And we have to deal with that at the same time, if not first. Because this is urgent. Very, very urgent. If we, if we have to die in a war, at least if we die with a liberated heart, then that's a life of victory. We will die one day, in one way or another. It almost, excuse me for saying this, it almost doesn't matter, but I do believe this. It doesn't matter how long we live. It matters how we live, how we live and how we die and how we face our joy and our pain. This is the real victory that we can achieve with this life, this human life, this precious life that we've been given. And the weapon for winning this war is love. If we can die with a heart of pure love, we have nothing to fear at all. The weapons are love, harmlessness, and solitude. Love, harmlessness, and solitude. And that might be a mystery, solitude, but you're experiencing it right here in your meditation practice. It is a very lonely path, isn't it? You we long for intimacy. We long for some kind of companionship. And being alone in the retreat and keeping your eyes down and not talking and not making phone calls and not checking your email. It's a solitary path. That's the physical solitude. The chitta viveka is the, the seclusion in the mind. It's even more solitary. We close our eyes and we sit within ourselves. When I began a more hermetic practice uh, a little over three years ago to live alone at first I I also found it excruciating I thought when I left the community I thought oh boy I'm just so excited you know to be alone I had such a longing for solitude and then when I was alone yeah I wished I could be with people I was so rejoicing to be alone that after a few weeks of just, you know, 
meditating on my own, not talking to anyone, not seeing anyone. You start to have these longings to see see my Dhamma friends and have good, a good Dhamma discussion. You know, to talk about practice. <laughs> Missing them. It's a lonely path. But in order to really clear out and empty ourselves and to know ourselves deeply, some of that spade work we have to really do in the solitude of the heart. And then, when we come back into the company of our Dhamma friends, we really meet each other, we really connect as human beings. We're not just doing, you know, meeting an empty, frivolous chit-chat. Then we can be genuine friends. We're not demanding anything from them. We can really love each other. We're not saying, if you, if you be something for me, I'll be something for you. It becomes like a, a business deal. And a lot of our relationships and a lot of the marriages that you see are breaking up just for that reason. Because we've traded love for sex or uh, for money. You know, marry some rich person. I mean, or for, you know, good looks or whatever. Or somebody who's going to support your weaknesses. It's called codependency. We, we don't have to go into big discussion about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this happens in monasteries too. You know, we try our best, but we're still, you know, like kids, just wanting people to pat us on our back and say, you're okay. You know, I really like you. You're a nice person. I wish you wouldn't make so much noise when you meditate. <laughs> you're disturbing my practice. And it's the petty little things. You try living with 12 strangers that you have to see day in, day out. You know, you find all kinds of reasons to complain about them. But to really be alone and to discover that the complaining mind begins here inside of you. So you've got to learn to love, purely love yourself. And then when you're alone, you discover there is no one. There's no one who's alone. It's just Dhamma. It's just pure awareness, the pure knowing. There's no one, no one left to suffer. And then the loneliness becomes the whole world is with you. I began to, to find, I live in a little um, temple, I call it my little temple. It's a little place on top of a garage, like a little a studio. And, and I, there were times when I felt like there were so many people in there with me. How could they all fit in? Just everybody was there. They were right here in my heart. It was the most amazing feeling. You know, I didn't feel alone at all. Of course, then I get bouts of, you know, because then we go in and out of working with the um, states of confusion and ignorance in the mind. They resurface and we have to reapply the factors of enlightenment again and again and again. That's right effort. You have to persevere, be diligent, and the last thing, the armor 
But the charioteer is patience. We have to be so vigilant, so patient. Mad. We have to be patient to the degree of madness. Fanatic. Not for anything are you going to give up this path. No matter what happens, even if your leg falls off, even if you keel over and die in this meditation hall, and I pray that happens to no one, but (laughs) I remember Sada telling me once when I was on retreat in Burma, a lady died. And her daughter, who was also on retreat, she went running to the Sayedo, and she was upset. It was her, you know, her mother. <laughs> and he sat there and he said, what a skillful death she died. <laughs> and I was just astonished. I just couldn't believe I don't get it. But now I see, you know. It's just hard to kind of... So don't waste time. <laughs> but <laughs> we have to be really, really patient. We have to be so patient. We we have to be willing to get old and decrepit and still, you know, march on for the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Or if you're a Christian, march on for Christ. It doesn't matter. Find the way that works for you to liberate your heart. If you're a Kabbalist or a, you know, what are the different um, paths that, that there are today? There's so many uh, new theories of new religions. If you go to America, there's a new one being invented all the time. (laughs) Well, I have a good quote about that in here somewhere. Oh, I found it. This is a poem by Hafiz. He's a wonderful poet, a Sufi poet, of um, post-Rumi, I think. I suddenly forget, 12th or 13th century. Don't I? Can you remember? Yeah. After Rumi. We all know Rumi, of course. Stop being so religious. This is a translation by Daniel Ladinsky. He's very con- contemporary. What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past. And they often go there and do a strange wail and worship. what is the beginning of happiness it is to stop being so religious like that (laughs) isn't that glorious what is the beginning of happiness it is stop being so religious like that so real religion means Re-link, relinking, reconnection. It's about pure love. Coming back to a place of total honoring. You know, we do this with our hands. This is a gesture of respect. And what does it mean, this respect? It's a two 
It's like the, the symbol of the lotus bud. So the lotus, which represents the, the, the blossoming of the heart, the enlightenment, the blossoming. The lotus that rises above the muddy water and still is blooming. So even if you're in the, surrounded by the world, by samsara, you know, the fires of samsara are burning around you. But you are like a lotus flower, and we make this sign of the lotus. This is a sign of respect. What we honor is we honor truth. We honor liberation. We honor harmlessness. We honor each other. We honor peace. And in doing that, that intention of honoring is peace. Oh, then all we have to do is breathe and be. And it could be our last breath. It's only a body. No one dies. So it's nine o'clock. I'll leave that with you.